Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. Today on the show, what is service? We thank members of the military for their service, but what are we really talking about? There's been a lot of public focus on military, national, and community service over the past couple of years. Mostly, we think about it in the context of other issues, the war in Afghanistan, homeless shelters, the coronavirus. When you think about it, service is everywhere, not just in the military. But Americans tend to think of military service as something different. Is it? Is there a hierarchy of service? Who serves? Who is served? Is service something you choose or a product of circumstances? We ask those questions and a few more. Up next on Thank You For Your Service. Okay, so Jim, you served in uniform, including in a combat zone, and I haven't. And I'm honestly self-conscious about that sometimes. But you served too, Alice, in the Pentagon, you served in AmeriCorps. And I've been a Girl Scout leader and I once worked at a homeless shelter, but it's still not the same, you know? I mean. I know those things I did were service of a kind, but I have this sense that I can't lay claim to the same value for my service as you can for yours. It's funny, my dad, who joined the military at the end of World War II, never really talked about service as something that only the military did. But I think our society is still wrestling with what it means that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are the first large-scale protracted wars since the Revolutionary War that have been fought entirely by volunteers. There's a lot of talk about this idea that less than 1% of the U.S. population serves in the military. You know, I think about John Kelly's speech in front of the White House press corps a few years ago. Who are these young men and women? They are the best 1% this country produces. Most of you, as Americans, uh, don't know them. Many of you don't know anyone who knows any one of them but they are the very best this country produces. And they volunteer to protect our country when there's nothing in our country anymore that seems to suggest that self-service to the nation is uh, not only appropriate, but required. A lot of people feel that way, you know? Like the people in the military really step up and the rest of us are free riders. I know what you mean, Alice, but I don't think it's a healthy place for our society to be. The military doesn't have a monopoly on service or sacrifice. And if one of the definitions of service is putting other people in your community ahead of yourself, 
then an awful lot of civilians serve too. I'm really troubled when I hear people use military service as a kind of shaming device, particularly online. I think this is yet another public discussion that needs more nuance. I mean, I do think serving in combat is different. But I also think service is everywhere and different kinds of service are important to society in different ways and at different times. It puts this uncomfortable gap between active duty personnel and veterans and the rest of us. Two people who have thought long and hard about the issue of service are Sean Skelly and Janine Davidson. Sean and Janine both served on the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. The legislation that created the commission said that its job was to identify, quote, means by which to foster a greater attitude and ethos of service among United States youth, including an increased propensity for military service. The commission wrapped up its work earlier this year, and we talked to Janine and Sean about what they found and their recommendations to the country. Something they both mentioned that really surprised me was they found people don't know about all the opportunities to serve. A lot of service is just invisible. Here's Janine. It came down to, for many of us, the lack of awareness about service, just the idea that it could be something I could do for a career or that it's actually something of value and that the role civil servants, for instance, play in your life. I mean, you pick up your cell phone and check the weather in the morning. You know, that data are provided by the National Weather Service. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a government thing. Sean talked about the pipeline to service, which starts with awareness, but it requires a couple of other things too. We adopted a framework as we looked across America, boiled down to the three A's, awareness, aspiration, and access. People need to be aware of something that comes through information, education, exposure to opportunities and concepts. It's only then when they've got some awareness of it that they can aspire to it, actually consider and figure out, is that something I want to know more about? Is that something that I could possibly participate in myself? Does that inspire me? Does that motivate me to find out more, to actually perhaps pursue an, a job, an opportunity, doing whatever? And then if they're actually aspirational and they want to pursue something, they have to actually be able to access it. Sean and Janine both said the commission saw civics education as a way to address the awareness gap. Janine is especially mindful of educational issues because she's the president of Metropolitan State University in Denver. What we learned was there was a serious decline in civics education across the country, K-12 and in higher ed, but mostly in K-12, like alarmingly so. And in places where they have better civics education, especially hands-on learning, experiential learning, it's a very different environment. And so a big package of recommendations in the report is about enhancing civics education. For Sean, who served as a Navy pilot, this sense of civic burden sharing is fundamentally important. Those recommendations together are about making a generational change, turning the ship in a direction to go on a generational voyage of a greater appreciation and understanding of what our government does at the federal level, all levels, federal, state, and local, who the people are that serve us as citizens and our obligations as citizens to be the boss of those people. They work for us. We pay their salaries through taxes. We elect their leaders through all the various local and state and federal elections that we can and should participate in. 
And understand that it's just not a us versus them, but it's a for us, by us as individuals, and that we can participate. I remember being at my very first air show as a junior officer with my shiny, relatively speaking, beat up airplane, explaining what I did and why to, the, to pretty much average Americans. And they said, well, that's awesome. Thank you. And I, again, don't know where it came from. So, well, thank you. This thing's not free and I'm, I'm not free either. You know, there's a contract. I work for you. We do this on your behalf. So thank you. You know, we're all in it together. Janine spoke about something that has eroded this sense of shared public service in recent years politicians denigrating civil servants. One of the things that it was a personal issue for me is the degree to which for the last 30 years in America, we've been denigrating our public servants. You know, we have all this sort of negativity associated with quote bureaucrats. And, you know, when I was the undersecretary of the Navy, it would make me crazy. I mean, we had, and you guys know this, the civilians had been furloughed, you know, the uniformed military hadn't, you know, and you have congressmen and senators and anybody else who thinks that it's clever getting up and giving speeches about lazy bureaucrats, overpaid, underworked. And I spent a lot of time going around the Pentagon, pumping up the morale of my civilians, you know, <laughs> because you don't put ships on the water, planes in the air, boots on the ground without these amazing people that, you know, have advanced degrees that have been, you know, dedicating their lives to this thing. And so I think we, I really feel like we need a concerted effort at high levels to champion our civil servants. Sean really shared Janine's admiration for civilian service, and she also talked about who gets to serve. Sean has personal experience with one of the limits on military service. She's transgender. When she realized this about herself, it was 2006, and she was a commander in the Navy. And she'd been planning to serve for at least another five years. When I came to understand myself, understand my identity, that immediately meant, um, it was a nanosecond after I realized it and understood it, that you have to get out as quickly as you can, as safely as you can in the military because you can't serve in this way. Once I got out of the service, I have a lot of thoughts about what being a transgender American and one who serves or wants to serve in our military means today. Basically, anyone that wants to serve the nation in some role should be given the opportunity to prove that they're capable of it. And when they prove they're capable of it, we should seize upon their, their goodwill and allow them to use their talents for the betterment of all of us. There are not enough Americans who can successfully serve. Only 29% of people are eligible. The number of people that are propensed or inclined to consider doing it is, is below 20%. I think it's ridiculous that we would ever turn anybody away for, for reasons that are basically bigotry. Questions about who gets to serve, who qualifies, and why have been at issue at least since the U.S. shifted to an all-volunteer military in 1973. And when it comes to research about who serves, Jim and I knew we should hear from Amy Schaefer. Amy actually worked on the commission's staff, but she's also done some really important research on the tendency of military service to become a family business. I asked her what she means by a term she uses military caste. So one of the trends that we've seen since the switch to the all-volunteer force is that a greater and greater percentage of those who volunteer to serve are related to someone else who've served. So we see these generations of service, these mothers and daughters, all of whom are in the military, 
And this is actually a very normal trend. This is something that we see in sociology. It's called parental inheritance. The children of doctors become doctors. The children of lawyers become lawyers. The trend itself is unsurprising and not necessarily concerning. But I think what makes it different within the context of the military is the idea that these are the men and women we're asking to use force on behalf of our democracy. And so as we see this trend emerge from family to family, we see it grow increasingly isolated from the society that it's supposed to be serving. It is absolutely not a bad thing that the children of those who serve in the military choose to serve. That's a laudable thing. We should be glad that they're doing it. But I want to make sure that everyone else has the awareness, has the aspiration, has the access to military service as well. I also asked Amy about her own background because her father served in the military and so far she hasn't. I asked her, why didn't you join the military? And she said she thought about it really hard and she's still thinking about signing up for the reserves, but I could tell just how much she struggled with it. Something else that Amy said really struck me. I think for military kids, you have to actively opt out of military service and for everyone else, it is a very significant opt-in that may come with really significant societal pressure not to, particularly for women. And so this is something that I, I continue to grapple with to this day. Man, that's so true. I didn't come from a military family or a military community. And I remember one kid from my high school went to a service-affiliated college you know, not one of the academies, but one of the colleges that are feeders for officer candidate schools, people reacted like he'd spontaneously combusted or something, like it was a tragic curiosity. But you know something, that was before 9-11. And I think our culture has really shifted the way it thinks about military service since then. Yeah, it's so complicated. We've done this wild swing as a country since the 1970s, when a lot of people were really denigrating military service. Now, most of our society really extols it. And I think sometimes veterans can resent the thank you for your service culture, but it's a bit wrapped up in feeling overburdened. Amy had a different take on that. You know, the name of the podcast is Thank You for Your Service. And I think there's been a lot of commentary on that culture and what it means and how it's reflective of the current SIBMIL relationship. But I can't help but think that in the shadow of Vietnam, how phenomenal it is that the gut reaction from society, whether it's genuine or not, is to take the time to say thank you for your service, to take the time to take a moment at a sporting event and honor the troops. When you think about the people serving in uniform who used to change in the bathroom of the airport so that they weren't yelled at and spit upon coming home, there's a world of difference that I think is a very, very good thing. So while there's room for improvement, I think we've got to be thankful that people are walking up to strangers and saying thank you. So what does service mean for you, Alice? For me, it's kind of a lifestyle. I just want the things I do to have meaning for other people, you know, like to ease their circumstances. And it's also something that applies to missions greater than yourself, but also to small human interactions. I always just wanted a career where I touch other people, whether it's protecting them or, or comforting them. I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I think I have a lot of similar reasons. 
I think part of it's joining a cause that's bigger than yourself. But when it comes down to it, for me, it really is about acting on behalf of somebody else. Not just doing something for somebody else, but really trying to put others' interests ahead of your own. I think that is what is particularly dangerous about the view of military service as somehow being better or superior to other kinds of service, because it puts the focus on ourselves instead of on the people we're serving. Former Secretary Bob Gates warned about this danger in 2011 when speaking to West Point cadets about a Pentagon display claiming the seven army values, including selfless service, are what distinguishes the military from American society. It is rather peculiar to suggest that attributes such as integrity, respect, and courage are not valued in the United States of America writ large. If you were able to spend enough time getting around this country, you would find that the seven army values are considered pretty important and being practiced across our great country. Just ask a policeman, a fireman, a teacher, a volunteer working in the inner city, or the families of AID workers, diplomats, journalists, or intelligence officers slogging away under dangerous or spartan conditions overseas. When I think about it, I guess it all boils down to something Janine said. If you didn't serve in the military, it doesn't mean you're not a patriot. It doesn't mean there aren't other ways to serve your community and even your country. Among other things, service is very personal. Whenever we interview someone, we ask them what service means to them. Here are some of the answers we've gotten so far. What does it mean to be a member of society? What kind of obligations do I have as a member of a civic body? What, you know, what should I be a part of? Probably more than anything else, is services tied to devoting yourself to others uh, in a meaningful way. I have sort of this wide aperture through which I view public service, but it's, it's really about trying to find a way to make the lives of both Americans and the world a little bit better. I think it means submitting yourself to a cause that's bigger than you are and doing that for, you know, for a period of time. And that's generally what I think service represents, particularly the submission of the self. I think service for me is, it's the opportunity, it's the chance really, the privilege to get back to your country or to your community, it's to give of yourself. And I think you've got to emphasize the word privilege when you think about it, because it's such a phenomenal thing to be able to do. But I think right now in the United States, it also is something that is a privilege and not an opportunity that's available to everyone. Anybody who does something for their neighbors, for their communities, I think are ultimately doing something for us as a society, as a nation. At the end of the day, the more people are participating in the fabric of our society, the stronger our society is, our civil society. And so that's one of the reasons why, I mean, it's the primary reason why I think it's so important that we have so many more people thinking about service. What about you? How have you served? What does service mean to you? in your life. We love hearing from our listeners, so we invite you to record a voice memo for us with an answer to the question, what does service mean to you? You can send your memo to tyfyspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tell us your name and where you're from. We might play your answer on a future show. 
And if you want to read the final report for the Commission on Military, National, and Public Service, you can find it at inspire2serve.gov. That's the word inspire, the numeral two, and the word serve. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends on social media or give us a good review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Thank You for Your Service. Thank you.